please turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy 3. 1 Timothy 3. We will read together verses 1 through 7. 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. The Word of God reads, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer, a bishop, a pastor, an elder, Episcopos. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for, the, for God's church? He must not be a recent con- convert, or he may become puffed up and with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil." And that is a reading of God's word. Let us pray once again. Father, we commit ourselves to you now as we read. And now we'll proceed to talk, speak, teach from your word. We do it, Father, in faith because it is what you have commanded for the church when we gather. That the scriptures be read publicly and that there may be also exhortation from them. Aside from you, we can do nothing, O God. If the Holy Spirit who inspired the word does not come to illumine our minds and to help the one who speaks and help us as we hear, it will be a vain, empty, profitless endeavor. Father, we pray your help. We pray for Christ to be seen, for Christ to be exalted, for your people to be blessed. And even as we are engaging in this process of considering men for ministry and voting for them, We pray for the spirit, light, guidance, unity. Father, may your will be done. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Our pastor Freddie has informed already the process in which we have engaged as a congregation earlier during the year. You nominated or you presented in the advisory ballot, ballot the names of some men to be considered for ministry, and Freddie chose Didon and Mario to nominate them for the office of eldership and for us as a congregation to recognize if they are indeed the men whom God wants to be added to the ministry of the church. Freddie has been working with them, and according to our church constitution, in three weeks from today, We will be voting whether or not these men should be called as our pastors, our elders. The pastoral office is a solemn office. It is a solemn calling. It is to shepherd the flock of God. And Acts 20.28 says, It is a calling of God by the Holy Spirit over his church, whom Christ purchased with his own blood. 
It is not a trivial task. It is not something, oh well, let's do it. It is solemn. It is serious. There is no higher calling than to administer the affairs of the church of God, than to tend to the flock of God, than to shepherd the people of God, proclaim the word of God. This is serious business. How important it is for us to consider and vote for men in ministry. Somebody I do not know has written an expression that I've many times said and shared with men in ministry, even with the men who have been our pastors in Cornerstone. Michael Carlino writes, the godly, faithful life of pastors or the lack thereof will set the tone for the entire church they serve. I've said frequently, and I think frequently, that the godliness of our church will not be any more than the ones in our families. The godliness, the godliness we have our homes, at home. The evangelism in our church is nothing more than whatever evangelism we have in our day-to-day life. If we are passive, contemplative Christians, that is the church we have, because we are the church. Now, when you bring it to the life of pastors in the church, the life of the church, the godliness in the church, the, the, the presence and the manifestation of Christ in the church will not be an inch beyond what it is in their own lives and homes. So it is a serious thing that we are engaging in as we are calling men to ministry. And it is a sad thing and shameful thing. And if you watch TV as much as I do, and you watch social media as much as I do, how the world portrays pastors. Money-hungry, manipulators, womanizer, immoral individuals, mental midgets without a backbone, weak, intellectually inefficient that's how pastors appear in movies. That's how pastors appear in Young Sheldon. If you watch Young Sheldon, if you live on planet Earth, the silly, simple guys that are good for nothing, right? Well, we must undertake, undertake this calling seriously. We must undertake electing a man for office in the church of Christ, very, very seriously. It is even dreadful to consider that some people take lightly the preaching of the word of God, the administering of the affairs of God, the dealing with the people of God. So the agenda for the next weeks is going to be very simple. We're going to be looking at, to, at, at this passage and others and the call to the ministry, and we will be looking at the calling, the character, the confirmation, the commissioning, and least, or last but not least, the church responds to those who are called into the ministry. As to the calling to the ministry, the text we just read starts by saying, it is a trustworthy saying. If any man aspires to the office of an elder or to the office of a pastor or to the office of a bishop, it is a good thing he desires. 
nothing wrong with desiring that office, but the calling comes from God. The calling to the ministry is not something we muster up in ourselves. I remember in my last year of high school that we were told what we wanted to study. And we wrote what we wanted to study. And then we were given a test as to what we should study. And in many of our friends' cases, it would match what we wanted to study with the skill sets or abilities we have to do. Oh, I want to be a doctor. Yes, you're fit for that. But some guys said, I want to be a lawyer. You know what? I do not recommend you to be a lawyer. We have things we think we can do, we aspire to do, but we may not be called to do. Well, in the case of the ministry, some men have the desire to do it. Paul says it is a good thing. It is a good office. It is a good job. It is a good labor that you desire. But the calling to do it comes from God himself. Ephesians 4.11 says that it is God who gives these gifts to the church. Some gifts are no longer with us. Apostles and prophets. We, we don't have apostles anymore. I know some guys like to call themselves apostles, but in Revelation, there's 12 names of the 12 apostles at the foundation of the entrance to the city, a depiction of the church of God. And believe me, the modern guys that you see on television, and some of them are very popular, some of them even live here in Miami, their names are not going to be in that foundation. Those gifts are gone. They have ceased They no longer remain. Others do remain. Which ones? Pastors and teachers. And some people argue it's the same office, pastor, teacher. Whether it is or not, it's another story. But Isaiah 41, 9 and 2 and Galatians 1, 15 hint at something. That many times this calling, perhaps always this calling, even comes from birth. Isaiah and Paul were aware of having been called from their mother's womb. I know a guy who when, when tells a story that in, on third grade when he was learning to read, the teacher told his mom, when this guy reads, it, like, it looks like a discourse. It looks like he's lecturing. Well, eventually he become a lecturer. Many times God calls us to things and he arranges providence in such a way that that is what we end up doing. Now, how is the calling to the ministry manifest? Many times it is manifest in the desire to serve. In fact, when we call a person to the ministry, to the ministry of pastorate or eldership or even to the ministry of the diaconate, all we do is recognize what Christ already did in that person. All we do is admit, hey, such and such is acting like a deacon for months, for years. Such and such has been acting like a pastor, like an elder with us for a long time. And all we do is recognize what Christ has already done of that person. The desire for the ministry, notice, is not a qualification for ministry. The fact that you may aspire to it or desire to do it, doesn't necessarily equate that you are being called to it. Paul is just making a statement. 
If anyone aspires to the ministry, it is a good thing that person desires. Some people desire the ministry, but they are not qualified for ministry. And others are scrupulous and fearful, and they say, no, I don't want to be in ministry when God is really calling them into the ministry. So this desire issue may be a tricky thing. I remember many years ago when Jason was with us as our pastor that a gentleman came to our church with his wife and uh, nice visitor, we started talking, great, welcome, awesome, we're glad you're visiting as many of you have been visiting. And he came again the next week, awesome, great. The third week Jason calls me and says, Edward, you're not going to believe this. He says, what? This guy is already asking me about what ministry development program and pastorate uh, engagement do we have because he wants to be a pastor with us. Of course, he never returned when Jason told him that's not the way we do things in Cornerstone. And then later on, sadly, we learned that he had relapsed into some of his drug addict habits, and etc. And, and the point is that you may have all the desire in the world and all the interest in the world to become a pastor or an elder or a deacon desire means absolutely nothing it is good to have it because first peter 5 2 says that those who shepherd the flock of god must do it willingly with a good desire with the intention of doing it and that it is god's will that the ministry is exercised willingly. God doesn't enlist soldiers um, reluctantly. He's not like, well, come to the ministry and you're going to be serving, but always stomping your feet and soured and embittered because you don't want to do this. If you don't want to do this, don't do it. God, God doesn't operate that way. This is not a regimen where you, the more it costs you, the more godly and rewarding it is. That's not the way it works. God always makes people willing in the day of his power. Whatever God calls you to, he equips you to do it and gives you the joy and the desire of doing it. And some people wonder, how can you really want to do that? It is something mysterious God works when he calls his people to do whatever he wants to do and when he endows them to do what he's calling them to do. There is, of course, the challenge of you have Moses that God wanted to call, and Moses starts haggling with God. No, 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 don't call me. I'm, I'm not qualified. I, I stutter. I have problems. I have issues. Uh, you know, he had already problems in Egypt 40 years ago. No, don't call me. Find someone else. Call my brother. My brother is better than me. Yeah, you find that. You have find Gideon. The angel of the Lord comes to Gideon and says, Oh, Blessed are you, strong man, valiant man. Who are you talking to? I'm the least one in my father's house and in the least tribes of the families of Israel and in the smallest of the families of my tribes. What are you talking about? Yeah, that, that happens. Elijah under the juniper tree. Elijah the mighty prophet. We all want to be Elijah. Really? You want to be saying to the Lord, it's enough, take my life away, I want to die. That's what he was. Depressed under a juniper tree. And God didn't send him a lecture or gave, or gave him a lecture. He sent him an angel to feed him, to give him water, and to make him sleep. Because God many times is a lot more 
empathic, empathic or empathic and understanding that what we are with one another. He, he was not in the business of lecturing Elijah at that point. But the issue is that many times we get confused with these things. Uh, I love the case of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is preaching to a people whom God says you're not going to be successful. You're going to preach that will not listen to you. And Jeremiah preaches and preaches and preaches and warns them Babylonians are coming. The people get more hardened and hardened and hardened and more idolatrous every time. And it comes a point that Jeremiah is fed up with the ministry, with his ministry. And in Jeremiah 20, he writes, Oh Lord, you have seduced me. I love that word. You have enticed me. You, you, you deceived me. He accuses God of deceiving him. Why does he do that? You seduced me and I was seduced. You were stronger than me. You prevailed against me. Do you know why? This is because I said I'm not going to speak anymore in your name. I'm done. I'm fed up with these people. They don't listen. They don't want to hear. They want to throw me to jail. They want to stone me. All they do is cause me trouble. I'm done with you, God. Then he says, but your word was this fire within me. And it was a fire that I couldn't contain. I couldn't withhold. And I had to go and preach it. Meaning that many times... The desire to do the ministry is great. But the desire is just a starting point to find out if God really is calling you. Because many times, God is calling you, but you don't want to do it. The call to the ministry is many times preceded by providence. Tony spoke of providence. You spoke about providence in Sunday school. Why or what do I mean by the ministry is frequently or many times preceded by providence? That yes, in his providence, God can work on a person and provide for them natural endowments that will be useful for the ministry. If you are, are able to teach, well... It doesn't happen necessarily when you come to the Lord. It may be that you were a teacher already, and God uses that endowment as an aid to the ministry. Freddie was a teacher before being a pastor, and even before having the job he has today. Circumstances happen that lead to that preparation for ministry. Moses trained in the desert. He spent 40 years... Caring for sheep, protecting sheep, leading sheep to pastures where 40 years then later he would have been leading people, God's sheep, in that very desert where he trained with animals. Joshua was one of the spies. He saw the land. He saw these giants according to the others. And he was training under Moses from a youth. And then he would be the one that succeeded Moses in ministry. David, when he came to fight Saul, what was his resume? Listen, I'm a youth, but let me tell you, I fought bears and I fought lions. And I've been caring for my father's sheep for a long time. I can take care of that guy. I know, what a, I know how to fight somebody who's stronger than me. I have my tools. Now, 
God was getting this young man ready to be his warrior for the people of God. Apollos, Paul's companion, was an eloquent speaker that Priscilla and Aquila had to take him aside and kind of fine-tune his theology, but he was already powerful in words, and God used him mightily among the Greeks. Timothy, timid, young guy, Paul finds him about 16 years of age or something like that. The disciples in Lystra spoke well of him. Paul took him to go with him and eventually became Paul's most trusted companion. Paul said, I have no one like him who serves me as a father does to a son. Paul himself was a rabbi, trained rabbi, an expert in the Old Testament, and then trained in the wisdom of the Greeks. Why? He was going to be the apostle to the Greeks. He was going to be the one opening and unveiling the Old Testament to us Gentiles to get the connection. As Chad Bird says, when you're reading the Old Testament, put your New Testament glasses. When you're reading your New Testament, put your Old Testament glasses so you can get the connection between the two sections of Scripture that lead to Christ and to God's redemption plan. Now, beware that success in the world, natural endowments are not necessarily either a sign of God gifting a person or calling them to the ministry. They not necessarily equate, and I'll tell you a reason that is in the New Testament, Ephesians 4, 9, and 11. God normally calls to the ministry from the bottom of the pile. There's a passage that people use and speculate with it. Jesus went to the bottom, to the lowest parts of the earth. Oh, he went to hell, and there he preached. When Jesus died, he went to heaven, according to Hebrews. He told the, the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. So he didn't tell the thief on the cross, well, we'll have to hang out three days in hell and then wait for me there. No. What is Ephesians 4 talking about? It's a quote from one of the Psalms, saying that he took captive the captivity it's just a picture of Jesus coming down to Satan's realm as a conquering warrior and taking all his captives with him. And from the bottom of the pile, from the worst of the worst, Jesus gave gifts to men. Some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. So whenever you see a pastor or a teacher in the church, there is a very, very high probability. There are very few exceptions, but there's a high probability that that is perhaps one of the least indicated to be there. Least gifted, least probable, least endowed, because there is a business or there is a rule that God likes to use in his kingdom. He doesn't share his glory. So he finds little guys, ugly guys, not too gifted, not too smart, not too talented. says, okay, you're going to serve me. So that people don't get distracted by you and don't get dazzled by you, but they listen to the gospel. That's the way it works in the kingdom. Paul said the earthen, the treasure is an earthen vessels so that the excellency of the ministry of redemption 
maybe of God, not of ourselves. Do you remember when that, I don't know if that story is still there, but there was mayors at a town and country, not town and country, the falls, the falls mall, mayors, and then right beside it, imposters. Remember that? They had this, this superstore for jewelry, and then the imposters. They sell the cheap jewelry there. That's the one I like, by the way, cheaper. <laughs> but that's another story. But, but if you would look at mayors, you would see all these diamonds. And they would be in this little velvet box to enhance the beauty of the diamond, enhance the beauty of the jewel. Well, the gospel is like that. It's just that it's not a velvet box. It's really an ugly, raggedy cloth. And that's usually the guy who preaches or the lady who teaches. God uses the worst so that people may concentrate on the gift. Therefore, don't be dazzled by natural endowments because it not always works well. Now, the call to the ministry, which is great if you have the desire is confirmed by character. Pastor Freddie spoke about character, and I will not have time to describe the qualifications that are given there in 1 Timothy, but the call to the ministry is confirmed by character. The condition, the requirements for the ministry, lawyers call it, and I don't know if I'm saying this right because it's a Latin word, Sine qua non condition, meaning indispensable, unavoidable, it is necessary, it cannot be circumvented. The word in the original is, it is necessary that a pastor be like this. It must be that those who are called to the ministry, or even apply for the ministry, bear these conditions. They are non-negotiable. They are indispensable. Indispensable means that you cannot dispense of them. You cannot get rid of the tires and the rims for the car to move. You can have a super Lamborghini, a Porsche, whatever car is your favorite. But let's remove the rims and the tires. It's going to be a piece of junk on a parking lot. These qualifications are the tires and the rims for the car to roll. You cannot call a man to the ministry unless these things are present in them. I don't have time to talk about them today. But I want to say that we must beware of the extremes when we come to evaluate Mario and Dairon, or Mario and Dairon, depending on how you want to pronounce it, for their qualifications for ministry. What extremes we have to beware of? The extreme of careless negligence. We cannot downplay this. We cannot afford to downplay it. You know why? Because Cornerstone Bible Church is not Freddie's church. It's not the deacon's church. It is not anybody's church. It is Christ's church. He sets the rules. And when we mess up with that, 
he packs and goes. We may gather, we may even multiply exponentially, but he may not be here anymore. If we want to do this in his church, we do it according to his book. And the text says it is necessary. It must be that the pastors, elders, bishops are this. And that's the list I read to you. Second thing we have to be aware of, infatuation. Natural giftedness, I already said that. It may be misleading. Saul, King Saul, this was the guy, first king in Israel. We want to have a king like everybody else. Handsome, tall, and humble. That's the man. 6'5", six, 6'6", six, six, guy, shoulders up above everybody else. Handsome dude, strong, faithful to his dad, and he was humble because he didn't, want to, didn't even want to do it. Perfect politician, disaster of a king. Be careful. Be careful with infatuation. What about Absalom? Handsome dude. Dreadlocks. Thick hair. Actually, he died because his, thick, his hair got tangled in a tree, and that's where they caught him. Handsome. Charming. He stole the heart of the people away from David. And he had court experience. He was the son of the king. This is the guy. No, he was not. Be careful. Be careful with becoming infatuating, infatuated with smart people, charming, gifted people. The Corinthians despise Paul. Because they preferred those sophists that were so well spoken, so well presented, so prim and proper. They, and Paul was this Jewish, you know, despicable presence individual. And he says, be careful. Satan himself disguises as an angel of light. Be careful with infatuation. Dominicans, when they are scared about something, we say, without. Like, beware, cuidado, but we don't say cuidado, we say cuidado, watch out. Mexicans say, aguas, water's coming. Be careful. Don't be infatuated at nice people. Third thing we have to be aware of is confusion. Again, a person can be very gifted. A person can be an excellent CEO at his corporation. Fantastic leading guy, fantastic platoon leader at the military. Nothing to do with being a pastor in the church. Nothing to do. In fact, the skill sets, the skill sets that are that are needed to be a CEO or a director are inversely proportional to those that are needed for being a pastor. If you're gonna be a CEO, you know that you have to be a firm man from woman and just cut through the chase and follow the, the plan and do what it needs to be done and if somebody needs to be fired, let him be fired. You perform or you walk out. Yeah, but the church is not a company. It's not a corporation. The church are sheep for whom Jesus died. And the skill sets that are needed to deal with God's people entirely different. Somebody called me this week, say, hey, I'm calling you for something. Yeah, what's up, bro? Somebody from another church. 
I need to know if, and he tells me the problem he's having. He says, I need to know if you and your wife have those problems because my wife told me that you don't have those kinds of problems with your wife. He says, you don't know the half of it, bro. Don't follow my Facebook postings and my jokes. We all are in the same boat. She deals with a crazy dude and I'm raising a little girl. That's, the, that's our marriage. So that's the way we spend back and forth every day. She tames the crazy man. I keep raising the little girl. This morning she opens the door and holds it for you, Chewy. And she tells me, you see, you see, I'm holding the door. This is because last week, I don't know which of you was coming in. And she just let go of the door, boom, and hit him. Says, Mama, you have to hold the door when somebody's coming behind you. Well, that's my life all day. But I'm telling you this one. If she tells you hers, you take me to the madhouse. That's life. Now, in that reality, don't be confused. The skills required for shepherding God's people are the skills of a servant to feed, tend a flock, not to drive them like Esau drove his sheep. Beware of preference. The ministry is not about popularity. Nothing to do with that. We are not the ones who define the qualities or the measure of the qualities. God has done it in his word. Oh, but I I don't like Mario. I don't like Dydon. I don't like Freddy. I don't care. Maybe they don't like you either. They swallow it, right? That's not the deal. If a man aspires to the office of an overseer, it must be that they are like this. Beware of one that maybe it's our problem. Maybe. I mean, I don't know a lot. I've only been a little bit in Cornerstone. I used to be a pastor here. I think I know some of you, but not everybody. Maybe this is our problem. Beware of rigorism. Rigorism, what is that? This is we may tend to err in Cornerstone. We cannot hold pastors to a higher standard than that of Scripture. We cannot. We just hold them to the standard of Scripture. Some of us judge pastors and their families with a rod we're not willing to use with ourselves. Remember that passage in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, that do not judge, you may not be judged because with the same measure, you measure your brother, it will be measured back to you. The word is metro, and that metro was just a a rod, a measuring rod. How deep, how long, how wide. And Jesus is saying, as you're judging people with your, of course Jesus is not saying that because they have not invented those measurements yet. If you're taking your physics class, okay? But as you're measuring people with your millimetric, nanometric, measuring rod, and no, now I have one that is a GPS, and I pull my phone out, and I can tell you the half of a nanometer. Okay. Day of judgment. Jesus says, hey, what's that you have there? Oh, that's my measuring rod, Lord. Pass it to me. Come here. I'm going to measure you. That's serious stuff. I don't want to be the strict, rigorist 
stickler. Things need to be done this way. Because Jesus will judge you the same way. If you are a person who understands grace, you'll have this measuring rod that will be like, yeah, it's good. Yeah, but it's only half. It's okay. It's a half is good. I round off to the next number. That's the, one you want. That's the way you want to judge people. Now, you want to use scripture, of course. Because we, be we must be careful of negligence. But we must beware of rigorism. Sometimes we act with pastors. Like I told you previous sermon, the Pharisees acted with people. We tie heavy burdens on them. We tie heavy burdens on their wives. We tie heavy burdens on their children. But we're not willing to move those burdens with our finger. Things we ask of their wives and their children and them, we don't ask them from our wives or our children. Be careful. Do you know why? That's my last point. Because the qualifications for ministry are not the qualifications for a special caste. Caste. Am I saying that right, Lynn? The Indians have castes? Yeah. The special caste of people. Qualifications for ministry. You know what they are? The qualifications for being a Christian. Whatever 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7 says, the pastor must be, bad news, you too, and me too. Don't believe me? All right. Let me give you a quick sample. I couldn't put it on the screen. But you can do the homework yourselves. I'm going to just go quickly over the qualifications. They must be above reproach. Philippians 2.15 says to every Christian, you must be blameless, above reproach, in this evil and perverse generation. Oh, they must be sober-minded, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable. Titus 2.11-14 says, the grace of God has appeared, teaching all men and women and children. Oh, it's grace. Yes, grace. It teaches us to be godly, upright, sober-minded. Just like pastors are called to be. Hmm. Well, they must be hospitable. Yes. The pastor has never, ever invited me to his house. Well, Hebrews 12 two says, Do not forget hospitality to all of the church. First Peter says the same. Some people without knowing have hosted angels. So have you invited the pastor to your church, by the way? Or those who are being... Considered for ministry? Never invited me. I don't even know who they are. Oh, have you called them to yours? Because the call for hospitality is for you too. And for me. Able to teach. We are to be sharers of the gospel and partakers of the gospel. We are priests and kings. And we are called to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So we too have to be able to teach. And the older women have to be able to teach the younger women. Hmm. Not liking this. No, me neither. Not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. Oh, there you got him. Do you have seen the temper of this guy? Well, I don't know, but Philippians 4, 5 says, Let your gentleness be known to all. How about your temper at work? How are you known at the office? People afraid of you? People scared of you? People call, scared to be called into meetings with you? Scared of your emails? Scared of your presence? <laughs> it is 
They're just called to be examples of the gospel. That's it. Not a lover of money. Yeah, Jesus said to all of us, the life of a person does not consist in the abundance of the goods they possess. Oh, but they drive a very nice car to be a pastor. Yeah, what about yours? You drive in an old clunker, a clunker that you bought in Hialeah at one of the junkyards and fixed it yourself? No. That doesn't mean they are lovers of money. What about you and me? Hmm. Manage, they must manage their own household and have their children in submission. So your children are running around <laughs> and tripping everybody, but if one of the pastor's children are doing the same, you see them doing it. But you didn't see that yours went three times faster, four times before them. It's the same calling. Parents, raise your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord that was given to everybody in the church. He must not be a recent convert so that he may not become puffed up and be considered with the condemnation of the devil. And Paul says to all in Romans, do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the humble. Yeah, the pastor has his cliques. They have their cliques. They only talk to themselves. What about you? You don't have any cliques? Do you talk to everybody? Guys, these are just the qualifications of what being a Christian means. They have to have a good reputation with outsiders. Be careful the way you conduct towards outsiders, as Colossians 4. Be careful. Do not be negligent, but as you're judging them, set a mirror. And then as you're looking at taking your selfie, then you're looking at them and say, boy, but I'm uglier. Yeah, you are. Keep looking at them, but keep looking at yourself with a mirror of God's word. Who should be a pastor? An elder or a bishop? Do you know who? Somebody who's broken, humble, meek. Somebody who serves Christ, following his master, whom according to Mark 10.45, didn't come to be served, but he came to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Why do we have pastors? It is a token of Christ's love. He left us with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit raised us men in the church to remind us of the love of Christ, to comfort, to encourage us, to prod us, to serve us. And whenever we see them laboring, all we're seeing is, a reminder of Christ leaving servants to help us in our walk to heaven. And I end up with this passage in Matthew 9, 35 through 38, that Jesus went through the villages and he saw all the people downcast and he saw them scattered as sheep without a shepherd. And he told the disciples, the sheep are many, the laborers are few. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into his harvest. Amen. Father, bless your word and bless this process in which our congregation has entered. May you be glorified in it. May we have the mind of Christ regarding how to consider Dion and Mario. May we be moved to piety, godliness,
seeking your will, earnestness, and may your will be shown in the life of our congregation. We pray your help and your blessing as a result of this process. In Jesus' name, amen.